This is hell. Live from late capitalism, or whatever you want to call this nightmare, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, I got into a car accident. No, oh, that's but, awesome. Uh, more interesting than that is uh, I will cede my time to uh, new Patreon subscriber and listener Vaughn Allen, who asks, question for Chuck. I have a memory, possibly, probably not accurate, that Chuck doesn't like Deep Space Nine. I am also not a fan <laughs> of Deep Space Nine, mainly due to the war sci-fi that I feel was an athlete in Roddenberry's vision, i.e. where the F are the Orgonians? Organians? So my question is, has Chuck ever talked about his dislike for DS9 more in depth? <laughs> and regardless, I would like to hear more thoughts from Chuck on Trek, sci-fi in general, and why DS9 sucks, and so on. Please and thank you. Okay. Uh, here's why Deep Space Nine sucks. It just sucks. It's just awful. It's horrible. It started out kind of good. Yeah, it was too warlike. It was really dumb. All right, that's enough of that. Today on this week's This Is Hell, there are different ways of learning than what we know as an education. That romantic view of education with its vertical trajectory, individualized development with learning controlled by a hierarchy of teachers and administrators who create and reinforce a training ground for governance under capitalism with credits, debts, and formal exams leading to a world delineated between graduates and dropouts. Maybe when you think about it, education doesn't deserve to be viewed romantically at all. Maybe what we need isn't free education accessible to everyone everywhere, but a complete rethinking of education as a mode of study to begin with. We'll be guided through the study of study when we welcome to This Is Hell political theorist and decolonial abolitionist Eli Meyerhoff, author of Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Eli is a visiting scholar in Duke University's John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute and program coordinator of the Social Movements Lab. You can follow Eli on Twitter at Eli M-E-Y-E, Eli M-E-Y-E, and you can find out more about Eli at EliMeyerhoff.com. Later this week on This Is Hell with Thanksgiving happening this week, what better way to remind you that the whole national origin myth surrounding the holiday here in the States is about white supremacy and the continued colonialization perpetuated by white Europeans upon the indigenous peoples of the Americas. We'll get you in the Thanksgiving spirit by memorializing this day of mourning for Native Americans when we speak with David J. Silverman, author of This Land is Their Land, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. David is Professor of History at George Washington University. Then our final guest this week will be Alyssa Battistoni, who wrote the essay Strike for Sunshine. At least that's the one I think she wrote. Is that the one she wrote? Did, did you double check on that? Uh, I'm waiting to get confirmation on that. Okay, which is part of the new collection, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal and will be featured in a series of interviews here on This Is Hell. Other past guests who have contributed to the collection are Kate Aronoff and Thea Riafrancos. Alyssa is a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University and an editor at Jacobin. This is her second appearance on This Is Hell. She was on in November of 2017, so almost exactly two years ago, to discuss her Jacobin article, Living, Not Just Surviving, Working Class Movements Must Place Social and Ecological Reproduction at the Heart of Their Vision of the Future. Of course, we'll end this week's show as we do most week's shows and that's with a moment of truth from jeff dorchin we warned you this is hell brave enough to be <clears throat> excuse me brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and alex has this week's hangover cure this week's hangover cure is campari and espresso that sounds delicious right in now. a may article written by gwendolyn smith at the guardian headlined pickle juice and marmite the 11 Best Hangover Cures by Pub Landlords. Smith quotes Josh Castle, sommelier at Noble Rot Wine Bar in Bloomsbury, London, saying that equal parts Campari and espresso coffee is a good remedy once you've realized that your vows to quit alcohol forever were somewhat unrealistic. Smith notes that Castle also takes the admirably proactive step of trying to avert a hangover while still drinking. Castle claims, I have no desire for three-day-long hangovers, so big boozy reds and weighty whites... <laughs> are completely off the cards. The Loire Valley is a great source of complex wines that are lower in alcohol. So that makes this week's hangover cure, Campari and Espresso. That sounds absolutely fantastic right now. In case you don't know what Campari is, it's a kind of bitters and it is absolutely delicious. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This 
is hell. As we head into the season when we celebrate the holidays of our state religion here in the United States, let us all pause to figure out exactly who we are supposed to give thanks to and consider the true meaning of whatever the hell happens in the United States at this time of year, every year. I guess we're all supposed to be giving thanks, which means we must consider do some sort of inventory of what deserves our gratitude since the last Thanksgiving, I guess, unless there's some other time frame that we're supposed to be using for giving thanks. I have no idea. This was never really explained to me. All I know is every year we'd get a Thursday and a Friday off from school or work right before the consumer binge that is Christ's birthday, after which we got another break to recover only to massively consume in a bacchanal of calendar calendar page turning which does nothing more than spiral into another year of drudgery or at least that's my take on the holiday holidays maybe you know maybe, maybe yours is less grim and if it is good for you i can't stop wondering about exactly what it is i am supposed to give thanks for and who or what i am supposed to thank it can't be God. After all, it's a national holiday, not a religious holiday, and we don't get religious holidays off because the United States does not have a state religion. We're not a theocracy, are we? I mean, we don't get Ramadan or Rosh Hashanah off, so Thanksgiving can't be religious. It, it must be something else, something other than a religious holiday. After all, the whole point of the United States coming into being was a revolution against the people in power saying they were in charge because they were divinely cho chosen as God determines everything and, and God controls all. Therefore, they must be in power because God wants them to be kings and queens and anyone who challenges them must hate God. The U.S. was created because rebels revolted against that dumb monarchy scam. It's as if J Jeff Bezos would argue, everything is God's will. God's will made me the richest person in the world. So me being the richest person in the world must be God's will. And therefore, if anyone who threatens my riches, well, they must be acting against the will of God. Wait, that does sound like a great grift and hat tip to the British monarchy for ripping off the people of the UK for as long as you have. Truly, you are some of the best con artists of all time. And for that, we should all bow in reverence, you master thieves. I mean, a centuries-long grift of... That's really, really impressive. But there's all this in-God-we-trust stuff we keep stumbling across on documents and representations related to the United States. Granted, it was all added late in the game and only due to the fascist bullying of the McCarthy era and its fear-mongering white supremacy and privilege. Despite the very founding of the United States being about turning your back on divine rule, here we are with a Christian nation belief based on a myth stating the opposite of reality, a belief that is more a religion and not any religion, but a state religion, a state religion unlike any other, a specific belief of American white exceptionalism and innocence, a faith in the lie necessary to allow us to accommodate the rationalization and logic capable of silencing any shameful, guilty complicity in a system that, if it was in a sci-fi movie, would represent the bad guys. The myth you need to remain the good guy in your mind, or non-good guy, or non-guy that's good, a, a shield to keep from snapping, to protect from realizing any conflict between morals, ethics, and what might be best for the bottom line, the line where we kneel and genuflect as we offer gold at the altar of paying off our sins so we can get back to sinning until next week. Sorry to get all college kid who just read Zinn for the first time on you, and oh, how I hope a certain relative who I truly love and I will be seeing over the holidays isn't listening to this because in our democracy of unfulfilled promises, discussions of governance are actually taboo as our conversations about religion, despite everything about the holidays having everything to do with politics and religion. It's like being in a burning theater and any mention of the fire is prohibited. Sure, you can talk about the performance on stage, the lighting, the sound, even the emergency exits and potential for, fa for fire safety reform in the future. You just can't mention the fire. Thanksgiving can't be a religious holiday because it doesn't embrace any singular religion, at least, that I can think of. I mean, sure, Christianity or whatever the whitest 1% of the 1% of the whitest practice, but it's not really Christianity in that there's really nothing Christ-like about it. I mean, what's Christy about blessing a nuclear warhead or aircraft carriers? Or can you imagine Jesus going up to the, I don't know, 
who was fighting the Romans. It's never really explained in all those Christ movies they play around the holidays or on corporate U.S. television that benefits like money changers during the holidays as they play reenactments of the life of Christ, which Americans watch, but hell, if they actually consider a kind Christian accepting life as a standard, Christ has become a superhero on U.S. media and not much more. So who am I supposed to thank and why now that Thanksgiving is arriving? If it is a national holiday, then I'm probably supposed to be thanking the nation for everything it's done for me. And sure, I appreciate the collective contribution of everyone to for things like, you know, roads, somewhat clean and safe water, fairly efficient first responders. Thanks, everybody. But I don't feel comfortable thanking capitalism and the fact that capitalism is asking, is begging me to give thanks. Well, it comes off as kind of desperate. Sure, their desperate shame makes me feel uneasy, but it's not the kind of uneasy that makes you cave in due to guilt. More so, it's the kind that stiffens your resolve, leading to a chilling dissolve, leaving the antagonist, can I say, crestfallen? I think I can, after all, it is the holidays. But if there is a national holiday for giving thanks, then do we get one for placing blame? Because blame's giving sounds very therapeutic to me. I'm not asking for some kind of violent purge, but a psychic one sounds freaking great. I got lots of chips on my shoulders from every flavor, starting with original, going all the way to flaming hot dill pickle, which is a real chip thing. Thanksgiving isn't religious. It's national, perhaps an attempt at making it so we don't consider the role we play in reproducing our horrible system's destructiveness, even making gluttony the center of the celebration in the form of huge meals or wasteful gift-giving, gifts wrapped in unnecessary packaging and wrap, all for the sakes of, all for the sake of what, what, I don't know, feigning wealth, the wealth of, feigning the wealth of kings and queens, sure, profits, end-of-year tabulations, boosting sales, economic growth, creating temporary jobs that many depend upon, sure, it's great, uh, for paid work, that the paid work actually exists, but even for those who depend upon that check, it's so precarious from season to season, it's certainly not dependable and in any way. But the whole national holiday season seems kind of disgusting, yet no, wait, it is just disgusting. We give thanks on a Thursday, followed by a day we give money and celebrate Black Friday, followed by Online Monday, after we're gorged ourselves with one meal at least three or four times, only to harass whoever you got on your secret Santa list. The whole thing is a nightmare, although the nightmare before Christmas gets you back in the mood every year. The mood for what? I don't know. The movie totally confuses anyone who's really high. I'm still not sure what we're supposed to thank who for, but this ain't a religious holiday or a national holiday, but the ultimate state religious holiday of our religion imposed and enforced like by a divine power. The kind of monarchy can even impose, and that's American, whatever that is, and Christianity, whatever that is, and that whiteness of the nonviolence of Christ combines to create a genocidal colonial capitalist, and that's far from Christian. I, I, I don't know, America, Christianity, a, a pagan ritual, which we are all about to embark upon for the next month, if you can afford it, through the very end of the year when we get all lit to erase any memory of whatever the hell we're about to go through. And if we're lucky, it will all be a blur. And it's the holidays, so despite all that, I'm actually looking forward to the break, which proves this is hell coming up on this week's show. We're starting by studying education, considering what it is as a mode of study and what might be different and even better ways to learn. Then we'll actually learn the true, true meaning of Thanksgiving and reconsider it as a day of mourning. And our final guest for this week will discuss labor's role in any Green New Deal. We'll wrap up this week's slate of shows with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Murray. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. We have a romantic view of education. Our first guest this week believes it's not deserved. In fact, there's plenty of other ways to learn that may actually be open to other modes of study that what we understand as education opposes. Here to guide us through different ways of viewing how we can and should and could learn 
political theorist and decolonial abolitionist Eli Meyerhoff is author of Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Welcome to This Is Hell, Eli. Thanks, Chuck. It's an honor to be on the show. You write about Corey Menefee and how on June 13th, 2016, he decided the window had to go during this uh, work break, during his work break, the 38-year-old African-American service worker at Yale University's Calhoun College Dining Hall, named for slave owner and colonialist John C. Calhoun. Menefee used a broomstick to smash a stained glass window that depicted enslaved people of African descent. Menefee reached an impasse about racism in the university. His response was to destroy the offending object, and this opened up a broad public discussion. Yale responded by narrating a crisis of public relations. They sought to shut down the critical studying that Menefee's action had incited, unmasking higher education's normative narrative of uplift, community, and romance. Menefee had exposed some of its hidden violence. How hard do universities work to erase their racist? And as you described the controversy over uh, feminist Sarah Ahmed resigning over continuing sexual harassment, where she taught sexism as well. Do, Do universities actively try to deny their past as well as their present when it comes to what you call their hidden violence? Universities put so much effort into PR about their own images. They, they try to shape their public image in a way that makes them look uh, valorous and good and seeming like they're serving justice and equality in the world. Um, and when people call out the, uh, the BS of, of those those narratives, then universities try to in, incorporate the uh, the narratives of their dirty histories in, into their own PR. So, for example, a lot of universities recently have have started these kind of self reckoning projects about their own dirty histories of entanglement with slavery and colonialism. <laughs> but they they usually try to um, control the narrative around those histories, um, making them. Uh, forms of, of reconciliation with a kind of dirty past that that they try to portray as as only existing in the past and not not continuing in the present. Um, so it's yeah, it's hard to find any uh, university that's that's really willing to to reckon with how um, the legacies of slavery and colonialism continue today in, in universities. How does that striving for good public relations, how do you, what impact do you think that has on the student's ability to learn? Well, I, I think that uh, it's, it's necessary for, for students to um, continue paying a lot of tuition to attend these, these universities um, to to have a an image of the university that they're attending as a a good um, justice serving um, institution is 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 a kind of um, necessary willful ignorance um, that that students and and everybody who works at universities and who, who sees these universities as part of their self identity um, they they need that kind of willful ignorance. In order to uh, continue um, studying there or working there, as as a way to continue believing that that what they're doing is is legitimate and on a path of, of righteousness in the world, so it, it yeah it creates these kind of um, blind spots, systematic blind spots in in people's and students um, and other university workers' understandings of of their of their institutions and and of themselves and their ignorance of their complicities with um, racism, uh, exploitation of capitalism, ongoing settler colonialism. How, how, de- how dependent <clears throat> then is education? How dependent is education on that idea of romance? Is education as we know it today sustainable without that feeling of romance around it? Well, I... I, I I use this I think of this term romance in in a couple in two different senses in in, in one sense we're, we're we're romantic about education in the sense that that we treat it as a necessary good um, and as an, an inevitably a righteous thing but it, there's another sense of romance that that is really built into the very structure of education itself and this is the 
the <laughs> the genre of romance or the romantic narrative of of a um, a heroic person uh, struggling to overcome obstacles in their life and um, overcoming those obstacles uh, through hard work. This this romance narrative is built into the institutions of education, uh, particularly with how schools and universities are divided into levels that are, are vertically arranged, hierarchically or vertically arranged. So we, I think we often take this for granted. I, I took this for granted before I started studying education critically. This, it's this, this vertical imaginary of, of a person rising up grades, graded levels from kindergarten up through 12th grade and then rising from lower education to higher education. And I think, think part of the way that that, that imaginary has, has become so taken for granted or, or, or an indication of how it's been taken for granted is that, that we, we talk about higher education, but we never talk about lower education, even though that, that hierarchy between higher education and K through 12 education is, is implied with the very erasure of, of the word lower is an indication of its um, reification in our, in our minds. And we think of that when we think of that kind of structure, that K through 12 and then getting an undergraduate, then getting a master's, then getting a PhD. We think of that as a natural process. How long has this kind of mode of study, this kind of education been around? If it's, how natural is it? So this is, this is what really motivated my, my research in this book. I, I wondered why, why we take this for granted so much. So I, I dove into a historical study of where that, that vertical imaginary came from to try to, try to un unsettle its sense of naturalness, to, to see how, how it has been historically, politically constructed. Um, so, I, so I found that this vertical imaginary um, <clears throat> really became tied with schools in, in the 13th and 14th centuries particularly in a, in a place that was called Lower Germany, which is now the Netherlands and Belgium and Europe. There, there are these um, kind of uh, spiritual convert groups, uh, per, particularly um, some women-led spiritual convert groups called the Beguines, who um, had, had tried to escape the, the horrors and violence of patriarchal family life by um, creating their own kind of proto-feminist communities together. And, and in these communities, they studied together. And they, they lived um, a pretty non-hierarchical life together. But the, and the, and their, <coughs> their way of living together was um, stigmatized by the church authorities and the, the patriarchal city authorities because it presented a threat to them. Um, so the authorities labeled these Beguines as heretics. And they persecuted them. So then, it, in, in response, um, there there are other kinds of um, convert groups. Uh, people people were, were flocking into the cities during this time, uh, especially around the time of, of the Black Plague, uh, when when there was all kinds of um, chaos and, and crowding in the cities. Uh, and these spiritual convert groups provided a kind of refuge from <clears throat> from the chaos of city life. Um, and one, one of these other spiritual groups was called the Sisters and Brothers of the Common Life. And this this group <clears throat> was led by by men, and and these men, uh, the leaders of the Sisters and Brothers of the Common Life, they they explicitly framed themselves in contrast with the Beguines um, who were being persecuted as heretics, and and, and so they they also structured their their convert group in a, a more hierarchical way, um, a more controlled, more patriarchal kind of um, community. And their, their communities included schools, which is the schools are one of the ways that they, they made money in order to um, sustain their, their lives. Um, the, the schools were all boys at the time. Um, and with, with crowding in the cities, uh, the, their schools became crowded with students also. So, so it means for them to manage this, this overcrowding um, was a technique of, of splitting their schools into levels, into graded levels, um, uh, nine graded levels, 
um, and split split them by age and ability level. Uh, and he, and that this was a kind of management technique um, to allow for for uh, greater greater sense of order and control. So that, that that's kind of the the political origin I found um, of of the this the splitting of levels. And and along with with institutional split of the levels, they they also um, had a kind of ideological justification for splitting them, uh, where they they narrated this idea of spiritual ascent. Of, of people um, rising up um, in terms of their their spiritual development, and and, and so the the students were seen as spiritually ascending up the levels as they they rose up them. And you uh, elaborate on education's role in the rise of capitalism, the emergence of the term education in 1530s England, people's rebellions pushed King Henry VIII's regime into a widespread crisis of legitimacy. The political technology of education served as a narrative solution when coupled with a constellation of binary individualized figures. For example, idle people with bad education versus hardworking people with good education. The rising liberal, colonial, patriarchal capitalist project was entwined with political theorists' development of the education-based mode of study. Is education-based mode of study then nothing more than a, a capitalist re-education camp? Uh, what, what, is the, uh, what came first, capitalism or education, and does that really matter? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I see education as a, a kind of precondition of capitalism. Um, and I, I, I see it, so I, I talk about education as, as what I call a particular mode of study. And I, I use that term mode of study to distinguish different ways of studying in the world. And this is one kind of conceptual way that I'm trying to unsettle the sense of taking for grantedness that we have about education. So if we, if we can see education as, as one possible mode of study in contrast with other alternative modes of study, then, then that can help us um, kind of un, unfix its uh, taken for grantedness, um, and so yeah, I I, I see um, education as as a particular mode of study composed of, of different elements um, that have coalesced together uh, in in a way that that I think has been conducive for the capitalist world for creating the capitalist world, particularly because education uh, shapes individuals as individualized producers, and it separates them from the means of studying, um, for them, for, from their means of producing more generally. That, 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 that kind of relationship, this, the separation, separation of individualized producers from the, the means of production, that, 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 is, that is the basic precondition for capitalist relations, because then those individualized producers um, are uh, um, in a, a sense, they have a sense of artificial scarcity of their um, means for living, um, and that that sense of scarcity uh, makes them feel that they need to work uh, in wage labor in order to survive, in, in order to um, uh, purchase the artificially scarce uh, commodities uh, for a living. When I'm reading your book, my mind is being blown like every few minutes because it's a different way of considering education that I've never considered before. And you describe the main features of an education-based mode of study, including a vertical imaginary, students rising up the levels of schooling, as we've been talking, pre-K through 12th grade through higher education, and a romantic narrative, students face obstacles and overcome them as heroic individuals along their journey up in education's levels. Now, some may see that heroic romantic narrative as one that builds a student's self-confidence and their ability to uh, do tasks and overcome obstacles with some degree of confidence. What's wrong with the student being the hero in their own process of learning? I know that we were just touching on this, but I think it's a really important point to make. So what's wrong with the student being the hero in their own process of learning? Well, I, I, think, I think there's nothing wrong per se with, with somebody seeing themselves as a hero in their own life. I, I think it's I think the question then is what what kind of hero are they, and what what alternative ways of being a hero could we imagine? Um, so so in the, the the normal kind of education world, this 
this romantic narrative of, of a student rising up the grades. Um, it's a very individualized kind of hero. It, it's, it, it's a hero who competes with other individuals in school for, for grades. Um, and it's, it's a, um, a kind of, of, of hero who um, uh, sees cooperation um, mutual aid, solidarity with others as as obstacles, as hindrances to to their own uh, success within a competitive environment. Um, it's it's um, and this this hero uh, shaped through education is is formed um, through through these these particular techniques of education and and I, so so I talked about the the vertical imaginary. Um, and another key technique is um, a kind of of emotional pedagogy of of shame and honor and anxiety and fear, um, which uh, eventually takes the form of graded exams. Um, so, so you're you're you as a student are um, seeking um, honor in the eyes of the teacher and the other students. Uh, through competing to um, get good grades, um, and, and and there's a kind of um, uh, uh, vicious competitiveness that that um, obscures the possibility for uh, cooperation amongst other people, and that, that uh, this is basically the the hidden curriculum of education that that shapes shapes students to be um, productive. Hardworking, competitive um, adults in in the capitalist world. So it's it's kind of affective economy of um, uh, through through pedagogy in the classroom that that shapes individuals um, for a successful life in in the capitalist world. And you return to Corey Menefee. This is the gentleman who smashed the stained glass window at Calhoun Hall, named for a slaver, uh, Yale University building, and the the stained glass window depicted very happy slaves working in cotton fields. You return to Corey Menefee. You write that to stabilize their their normal educational order, Yale's administration tries to recuperate his alternative black radical mode of study. Their attempt to maintain a normalized, effective economy of the university includes their politics of shame, which has two interrelated aspects. First, shame is brought onto the Yale University by an illegitimate other. And second, Yale brings shame onto itself. When Menifee is framed as a violent threat, he experiences shame seen in this act of apologizing. The administration frames his response as having expressed deep remorse about his actions. Sarah Ahmed notes how this kind of shame is experienced as the effective cost of not following the scripts of normative existence. Does the university teach shame for living outside of what one might call normative existence? Because I always thought universities were these bastions of open thinking, debate and discussion, and above all, the pursuit of knowledge at all costs. Is it more so schooling shame? And what is it What is it that it believes is a normative existence? What is the normative existence that the university is trying to enforce? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, it's hard to... I think for those of us who have gone to school for 15, 20 years of our lives, we, we've become so um, uh, used to uh, seeing this, the, the practices of shaming in, in the university as, as a normal part, part of our life that, that they've become invisible to us. Uh, and I, I think one, one way that I, I um, became aware of this was through, um, through through seeing the, the narrative of dropping out of school and dropping out of the university um, as a problem. Um, it, usually, um, uh, we 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 think of ourselves the, the kind of norm in in schools and universities is um, to rise up this trajectory up the grades um, and then to graduate to become a graduate. That that's kind of an internal normative ideal in schools and universities, but we often, those of us who are on that track, often don't think about how the, the constitutive underside of that, that figure of, of the, the graduate is the figure of the dropout, the school dropout. 
and and the failure failure on the way to being a school dropout. And that so that that figure of the school dropout is is a figure of shame. It's it's a kind of technique for for um, uh, people to uh, take on responsibility for problems of schools to, to shift attention away from uh, problems of structural racism and exploitation within schools and and instead to um, for someone who sees themselves self as a dropout they, they take on that blame um, and shame on, on their own shoulders <clears throat> so I, I personally was um, uh, subjected to this this kind of um, self self blame self doubt when, when I was in in grad school I um, somebody asked me if you know, I was thinking of dropping out and I, I wasn't really but but being asked that I um, that motivated me to to look into the the political history behind this this idea of the school dropout um, and so I I found that it um, that this idea of the school dropout as being a problem. Uh, wasn't wasn't really a narrative a public a public narrative until the early 1960s. I, I found that that liberal capitalist um, organizations had created this narrative as a response to um, their sense of being under threat uh, by the civil rights movement on the left, but but also by um, the right wing with uh, McCarthyite anti-communist um, attacks. <clears throat> so so the, the liberal liberal capitalist project was seen as under attack um, and, and people who are in establishment groups, uh, particularly the Ford Foundation and the National Education Association, developed this narrative of the school dropout as, as, a, as a way to uh, fend off these attacks, uh, particularly as, as a way to deal with with the problem of, of structural racism, uh, particularly segregations and racial inequalities in school um, w without actually um, doing effective segregation, uh, desegregation and integration. <clears throat> so the, the, the school dropout narrative is a way to, to um, re redirect uh, responsibility for Problems of structural racism onto individuals themselves, and in in, in, in a way that, that doesn't actually talk about race as a, a so-called colorblind institution. And, and the school dropout continues that um, function today. So, is the idea of a school dropout then? Is it a kind of dog whistle? Does it reinforce white supremacy and privilege at edu in education? Yes, definitely. So, so if we if we look at how the school dropout problem narrative was developed in the early 1960s, uh, it was originally narrated with um, uh, culturally racist uh, narratives. Uh, school dropouts were, or, or people who were called school dropouts, um, were were framed as as having um, poor cultures or cult cultures that that led them to um, to be un unsuccessful to become failures in schools um, and and they talked about school dropouts in a way that that obscured the the racial undertones um, because they they in the early 60s they they talked about this figure of the migrant instead of talking about black people and brown people they, they lumped together African Americans, um, Latinx people, with with poor um, white migrants to the cities, d domestic migrants. Um, so, so by talking about school dropouts with this deracialized figure of the migrant, um, they were they were able to um, uh, kind of direct critical attention to uh, the cultures of the migrant um, without actually talking about uh, structural racism. Um, and that, that that kind of cultural racism was was later um, dropped. Um, so not not people instead of talking about um, cultural disadvantage, they, they talk about educational disadvantage. But but still the um, uh, the, the the figure of the dropout still serves this function today of of redirecting attention away from 
uh, structural racism, like segregation and, and internal segregations within schools, especially uh, racialized tracking within schools, um, and it, it redirects a critical attention away from those those issues onto um, the relationships between individuals and their families, and individuals and their communities, and individuals and their schools. It's a kind of continual redirection away from structural issues onto individualized issues. So does education then end up being more than a process of learning? Does it end up being a defense mechanism for uh, making certain that an institution doesn't lose the power that it has? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it serves. I mean, can, I think if we think about what we call education, we, we see studying happening within classrooms in K-12 schools. We see studying happening in classes and courses in college and universities. Um, but but in, in addition to that studying uh, or, that, or the way that that studying takes place is, is shaped within these institutionalized practices that, um, that have all these uh, additional political effects of shaping people's subjectivities in certain ways, um, certain ways that are, are useful for um, make, making subjects who will, will function smoothly within um, racial colonial capitalism um, as a way to uh, <coughs> yeah, stig- stigmatize people who, who resist. So, so, so people, young people in schools who, who subvert the normal um, way of operating, who um, question their teachers too much, they're, they're stigmatized as troublemakers, as potential failures, as potential dropouts. Um, and they're, so, so there, there's a kind of, so education um, serves, serves this function of, of systematically uh, suppressing, stigmatizing um, e- everyday forms of subversion that students engage in. You uh, write that another feature of the education-based mode of study is the relations of separation between students as producers and the means of studying. The teacher enforces the separation and regulates the relations across it. And techniques of governance, students' subjectivities are shaped with dispositions of obedience to the teacher's authority as an expert. We've been discussing what took place with Corey Menefee at Yale University and how Corey smashed a stained glass window in his attempt to send a lesson send a message to the people at Yale University, the students, the workers, the faculty, everybody who is involved at Yale about the racist past of Yale University and how Yale University was founded much with the resources that were were the profits from slavery. So what impact does this hierarchy that exists within within education, what does that have on our ability as students who are trying to learn? What uh, what effect does that have on our ability to learn outside of education from people like Corey Menefee who are trying to teach us a lesson about the world as it exists around the students at Yale? Yeah, so so it, um, education I'll always, it, so when I talk about education as, as a particular mode of study, um, I'm trying to to open up our our imaginative horizons to see how how there there are alternative modes of studying happening around us and by us all the time so so i see universities and schools as as terrains of struggle between different different modes of studying um, that are associated with different ways of making the world and so so with the case of cory menefee i i see that um how he was engaged in an alternative mode of study to education. He, he was um, uh, educated himself, or he, he, he got a degree from a historically black college, um, and he, he came to Yale um, with, with an understanding of the, the, the historical and ongoing entanglement of universities with, with slavery and racial capitalism. Um, so. So, so then, when when he was at Yale, he he was working as a uh, as a service worker, um, and a, as a service worker w- within the the normal kind of um, 
educational hierarchy. A, a service worker is is supposed to be seen as someone who who does not have the, the legitimate qualifications to engage in studying in university. Um, and yet, here he was um, studying the university critically. He he was engaged with the um, the movement at Yale to change the name of the, um, the the building that he worked in, the Calhoun College building, which was named after um, the, the the colonialist uh, slaveholder Calhoun. So so he he was engaging in in studying outside of the classroom, outside of courses. Uh, and he he was um, uh, subverting the kind of hierarchies of of who is seen as having legitimate knowledge at the university. And the, the university, the Yale University administration, um, saw his his alternative mode of studying as a threat. Um, he, he he was motivated. He was motivated to study for for personal and political reasons. He he, he was studying Yale critically. Um, because he he cared about the movement to um, to to grapple with the legacies of slavery today, to grapple with slavery's afterlives, um, he, he wasn't motivated for grades or to make money um, from a degree. Instead, he, he was motivated for critical political anti-racist purposes. And Yale Yale saw that as a threat. You write the growing field of critical university studies whose calls for fighting privatization and neoliberalism via a return to a public ideal of higher education fail to grapple with and take a stand on the impasse of ongoing settler colonial and racial capitalist structures in universities. By contrast, some recent student movements have engaged in alternative modes of study around this impasse, rejecting crisis managers with the call of we are the crisis. What's wrong with education going back to the good old days before privatization and charters and student debt. Doesn't that just fix everything, Eli? Yeah, so the, this is another kind of romantic narrative um, about universities that I think is really problematic. It, it's this kind of nostalgia for for a public university, especially the public university that, that existed after World War II, um, when veterans were coming back from the war and there was the GI Bill, um, where the the government was um, pumping all this money into making big higher education more affordable and accessible. Um, when, when we look at books about the problems of, of universities today, especially in the field of what's been called critical university studies, we often find this kind of nostalgia for the post-war university. The, the problem with these nostalgic narratives is that they, they really crop out the violence of that institution. They, they crop out how, how, for example, the GI Bill was, was racially dis- discriminatory. Um, white returning veterans benefited from it much more than African-American veterans benefit from it. Um, they also crop out how the university um, continued to serve the purpose of creating knowledge for the military, um, for, especially for imperial purposes in the Cold War context. Um, it also cropped out how, how universities served a function of, of accumulating surplus populations um, who, who could have been engaged in um, uh, activities uh, like union organizing that, that might have um, uh, served a threat to liberal capitalism. Um, so, so this nostalgia, um, I think, is a uh, kind of rosy, rosy glass viewed um, history of the university. And so in, in contrast to this, um, some of my, my friends and I have been uh, developing a new approach to university history and, and present studies that we call abolitionist university studies. Uh, if you check out abolition.university a website, we, we have an invitation to this new approach so my, my friends Abby Boggs, Nick Mitchell, Zach Schwartz, Weinstein, and I wrote this, and so we're 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 um, we're trying to take in the, the approach of abolitionist movements into universities themselves, um, and so so rather than just saying abolitionism generally is a good thing, um, we distinguish between right wing and left wing 
forms of abolitionism. So go, going back to the anti-slavery movement, there, there were right-wing forms of abolitionism with, with people who um, had anti-black views and who, who sought to send um, formerly enslaved people to Africa. Um, we, we see this right-wing abolitionism conti continuing today, uh, for example, with the, the pro-life movement who, who call themselves um, the Abolish Human Abortion Movement. Um, that, that that movement also has uh, a racist history behind it. So in contrast with those right-wing abolitionisms, we're, we're taking on a left-wing abolitionism approach, um, which back in the anti-slavery movement were the people who were fighting for full equality and genuine freedom for formerly enslaved people. And, and that, that left-wing abolitionism continues today with the uh, prison and police abolitionism movements. Um, so, so we're trying to take this left abolitionism into universities themselves um, and to ask what, what it would look like to create a, a abolitionist university, uh, kind of inspired by W.B. Du Bois's idea of abolition democracy, which was the, the kind of um, new alternative forms of, of political and economic institutions that um, formerly enslaved people tried to create in the South after the Civil War and the Reconstruction period. Uh, du Bois called that that. Um, that vision, abolition democracy. So, so we're asking, what, what, would, what would an abolitionist democratic university look like? What, what kinds of spaces and relationships, new ways of knowing institutions would have left abolitionism um, in the university look like? Um, yeah, and so, so we're, we're, we're developing that um, in a way that um, comes back at, at and, and builds, builds on critical university studies, but, but also re rejects critical university studies tendency towards nostalgia. What's the uh, URL again? It's abolition.university. All right, abolition.university, and we'll make sure that we link that and share that with all of our listeners. We have been speaking with political theorist and decolonial abolitionist Eli Meyerhoff, author of Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Follow Eli on Twitter at Eli, M-E-Y-E. -E. Find out more about Eli at EliMeyerhoff.com. One last question for you, Eli, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response, but I think actually it's going to be anybody who has affiliations and uh, fanatical support for their university education. I think those are the people who are going to be upset the most. Is university education, because you write Education is just one possible mode of study among uh, many alternatives, and you argue that the education-based mode of study supplements modes of world-making that are associated with modernist, colonial, capitalist, statist, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal norms. Is university education then an education in how to perpetuate those modernist, colonial, capitalist, statist, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal norms? Does racism and sexual harassment persist on campuses because... University education reinforces those racist and sexist norms. Uh, yes, definitely. And at the same time, I'd, I'd say that universities are spaces of struggle where despite the dominance of education, the education-based mode of study, we, we also see alternative radical modes of studying happening. So, so if we see these universities as terrains of struggle, we can we can try to understand which sides of the struggle are engaged in any particular university campus. And if we um, have radical ideals, we can, we can commit ourselves to struggling and studying with people who are, are fighting for alternatives, um, such as uh, people engaged in the, um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement that came onto campus um, a few years ago, uh, people people who are engaged in uh, movements to decolonize their universities by by working with um, indigenous peoples, uh, Native American peoples, um, whose whose lands universities are built on, um, and trying to um, force universities to um, give back that land to Native peoples, um, and also another another alternative radical kind of mode of study that's happening universities is um, people who work at universities in service positions maintenance positions um, adjunct contingent faculty positions the people who are the working class of the university they're they're engaged in radical studying um, despite the dominance of education um, all the time so um, one way we can 
engage with them is to um, organize with them in solidarity um, and, and do what we can to um, study with them and amplify the kinds of studying that they're engaged in um, in, in their organizing. Because we have this sense that, or at least there's this media framing, this narrative, that what's happening on college campuses today are students who are overly sensitive or they're just too politically correct. Are safe spaces and trigger warnings not about overly sensitive students, but sexism and racism on college campuses and in the education mode of study finally, finally being recognized and held up to the light? Yes, definitely. The idea of safe spaces um, is is a way for students and others in the university to try to take back control of the spaces of the university and to institute norms of interacting with each other that can counteract the patriarchal, racist, capitalist, colonial norms that that dominate in in most spaces of the university. So so it's... um, it, yeah, it's really a, a conservative backlash that has that has labeled those those safe spaces as as a kind of, of political correctness and, and as coddling. Um, it's it's really a, a way to try to to belittle the, the potential political power of those those spaces that students are are creating. And to continue to reinforce an institution of white supremacy and privilege. Eli, I cannot thank you enough for uh, your work. This is really mind-opening. This is just a very enlightening book. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. Political theorist and decolonial abolitionist Eli Meyerhoff is author of Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to speak with you. Take care. Bringing you bong, hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. Alex, do you have this week's question from Hell yet? Alex? Yeah, sorry, I was getting that music queued up. Uh, what may, what, uh, what are you majoring in to get ready for the real world? What? Or, what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? What are you majoring in to get a job in, I like that wording, to get a job in the real world? In the real world, not the TV show, the actual thing. Does that TV show even exist anymore? This week's winner gets a book we just featured here on This Is Hell, Eli Meyerhoff's Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. This week's question from Hell is, what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? Leave your response at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On November 29th, 1781, 238 years ago this Friday, aboard the Zong, a slave ship sailing from the west western African port of Accra, the inexperienced British crew decided they had a serious problem. I mean, besides looking real bad historically being slavers and all. Not only was the ship carrying more enslaved people than it could safely handle, but the incompetent navigator had actually sighted their destination, Jamaica, and mistaken it for Santa Dominga, known today as Haiti. Does it surprise you that a racist slaver can't tell the difference between Haiti and Jamaica? As a result, the British ship continued to sail some 300 miles past Jamaica, deep into the Western Caribbean. Now they had to turn around and sail east, back to Jamaica, which at least, which was at least 10 days away. But they only had enough drinking water aboard the ship for about four days. And let me guess who ain't going to get any drinking water for the rest of the trip. By now, they had already lost several crew members and more than 60 Africans to disease and malnutrition. Let me translate. The slaves were in living conditions that didn't actually keep people alive, and they were being starved to death. The British slavers feared that if more captives, captives, more captives died aboard the ship, or even after reaching port, the whole voyage might have to be written off as a financial loss, which would be horrible for all the people who had already died aboard the ship. But the slavers believed that if they could later show that some captives had been jettisoned at sea so that others could survive, the loss would be covered by insurance. Consider that for a moment. If they could later show that some captives, some slaves, had been jettisoned jettisoned at sea, thrown overboard, so that others could survive, the loss would be covered by insurance. Slaves were definitely not in good hands with the insurance company. 
After taking a vote, that was awful nice of them. Guess who didn't get to vote? The British sailors brought 59 women and children up from the ship's hold and threw the slaves overboard to drown in the Caribbean. Let's call it a market efficiency. Two days later, the sailors began pushing men into the sea as well. An estimated 140 Africans were killed in this way, though it's recorded that one man somehow managed to climb back aboard the ship. The Zong finally reached port in Jamaica with fewer than half the captives with which it had left Africa. By then, the Zong had also collected more than enough rainwater in barrels so that everyone originally on board could have survived. The insurance company refused to cover the loss, and the matter went to court where a prominent British abolitionist named Granville Sharp pushed for a murder conviction, but the ship's crew were never seen even formally charged, much less prosecuted. And that may be the rottenest of history we have shared on This Is Hell in a very, very long time. And just in time for Thanksgiving, too. In Rotten History, November 30th, 1954, 65 years ago this Saturday, people in Alabama... Oh, and those are three words you do not like to hear at the beginning of a Rotten History entry, especially right after you read one about slavery. Please don't let this be about racism. Please don't let this be about racism. People in Alabama saw bright light shoot across the sky in the early afternoon. So far, so good. Some said it looked like an exploding Roman candle or the light from a welding arc. And in the... So apparently people in Alabama like to play with fireworks and they love to weld. And in the small town of Oak Grove, some 40 miles southeast of Birmingham, Ann Hodges was taking a nap on her couch when a strange object crashed through her window and hit her on the thigh, leaving a painful bruise the size and shape of a football. People in Alabama love football, too. And I'm thinking, I'm giving thanks because I didn't think this rotten history is going to be about racism after all, despite actually taking place in Alabama. Go figure. A rotten history segment in Alabama that wasn't racist. The object was a nine-pound rock, which was hot to the touch. Hmm. Word spread quickly in the small town that unbelievably racism wasn't involved, and after Hodges was taken to a hospital, the local police confiscated the mysterious rock and turned it over to the U.S. Air Force, where a geologist confirmed that it was a chunk of meteorite. Hodges and her husband briefly became celebrities on television and in newspapers and Life magazine. Now we know why that magazine went under. They were chasing around people getting hit by meteorites. They also learned that a neighbor had come across a smaller piece of meteorite in a road not far from their home and had sold it for enough money to buy a new house and a new car. And apparently new homes and cars in Alabama came relatively cheap at the time. So naturally, they were eager to reclaim possession of their own space rock. But they were challenged by their landlady, whose lawyer argued that since the meteorite had landed on her property, it was hers. Oh, hey, this... Rotten history isn't about racism, it's about landlords being dicks. By the time the landlady sold off her claim for $500 in an out-of-court settlement, the media frenzy had died down, and so had the offers to buy the meteorite. Hodges and her husband never got a nickel for it. After using it for a while as a doorstop, they finally donated it to the University of Alabama Natural History Museum, where it can be seen today, if you're into that kind of thing. Meanwhile, the stress of the whole experience drove Ann Hodges to a nervous breakdown, and her husband was quoted as saying the meteorite had ruined their lives. Everybody always blames the meteorites. Kind of racist, really, when you think about it. The Hodges separated in 1964, and Ann died of kidney failure. Eight years later, at the age of 52, she remains the only confirmed case of a person physically struck by a large meteorite from outer space. Ironically etched into the side of the stone, although neither of the Hodges ever noticed it, was a message written in Martian that was incredibly racist. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Live from Hangover Country. Hey, Alex, what's happening on tomorrow's one-hour streaming This Is Hell, beginning at 10 a.m. U.S. Central Time here at thisishell.com. Uh, tomorrow, David J. Silverman will be on to talk about his book, this land is their land, the Wamapoke Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. And what about uh, Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's and tomorrow's show? Uh, the first in a big series we're doing from the Verso book, A Planet to Win, the case for the Green New Deal. We're talking to Alyssa Battistoni about her writing uh, in the book. And uh, there's four authors, four chapters, and uh, next week, Theoria Franco is going to talk about her piece. 
So, did we figure out which essay is hers yet? Uh, I'm still trying to confirm that. I'm pretty sure it's Striking for Success, don't you think, of those four titles? Strike for Sunshine? Strike for such Sunshine or something. Strike in the title, that's got to be the labor one, right? Uh, let's hope. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to read I, the I, wrong I, one. I, I, I sent her another DM. We'll get it figured out. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink, and this week's should draw a big crowd because it's one of the busiest bar nights of the year, Thanksgiving Eve. In other words, it'll be a great night to meet other listeners of This Is Hell. Join us every Wednesday evening, but this Wednesday evening especially, Thanksgiving Eve, for a very special beginning of the holidays. This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. And don't forget our annual This Is Hell holiday office party happens on Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. And going until somebody does something really embarrassing. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Invite all your coworkers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office who you have to attend the office party with? Then invite the cool kids to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own homes? Then invite all your co-workers, all your online co-workers to the annual This Is Hell holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last-minute gift? We'll also have all of our This Is Hell merch available. That's Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. Again, Alex, the question from hell is, what are you majoring in? To get a job in the quote-unquote real world. Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you may win Eli Meyerhoff's book, which we discussed today, Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for uh, this week's Rotten History. Thanks to Eli Meyerhoff for being on this week's show. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing, and thanks to me just for staying awake. This week's Hangover Cure is Campari and Espresso. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.